last week for not turning it on. We've missed the introduction. You've missed the introduction. You've missed the introduction. So, but I'm going ahead. I'm going to go ahead and turn it on now. So, I'll probably edit this out. But anyway, okay. God says there is none who does good. There's not even one. This is what God says. Do you believe this? Do you understand this about yourself? Now, I know most of humanity, they don't really pay much attention to what God says. They don't really care what God says in His Word. Or they discount what God says in His Word. Uh, most of humanity thinks, well, I'm pretty good. We've talked about this in the last few weeks. I'm pretty good, right? Most people say, I'm, I'm pretty good. But, you know, the, the point is, their point of reference is not God. Their point of reference is some guy down the street, you know, who is not good. But most of mankind, as we talked about several weeks ago, they'll say, yeah, I'm pretty good. But what we're learning from the Word of God is good is an absolute term with reference to God. And the Bible says there, no one is good but God. That means that the rest of us are bad. If you look up in the dictionary, one of the definitions for good is, no, one of the definitions of bad is not good. We need Him, beloved. We need Christ. You can't get to God with your religion. We desperately need Him. We sang it, didn't we? Perfect song pick. We need Him. Because our goodness is no good. The Bible's clear. Man has utterly fallen. Man is utterly depraved. You know, you're not as bad as some criminal who may be in jail. And you're not as bad as you possibly could be. But in the eyes of God, apart from Jesus Christ, you are, someone tell me, John Piper's bad. John MacArthur's bad. Jim Albright's bad. So are you. That's one of the points that Jesus is going to make tonight. We need Him. You know, mankind likes to create religious systems. It makes, I feel better if I do religion. It makes me feel better about myself. And people see me do religion and they think I'm a pretty good person because I do religious stuff. This is why mankind creates religious systems. People notice me when I do religious things and they think good thoughts about me. And hey, guess what many humans think? Oh, I guess God's thinking good things about me too because I'm very religious. I'm very sincere. I'm very devout. I'm a devout person. You know, I've told you this many times. God's not impressed with your religion, nor is He impressed with how pious you are. What is God impressed with? He's impressed with His Son. And He's impressed with anyone who comes to Him through His Son, yes? He's not impressed with anything less than that. Anything less than that. I love what the 17th century uh, theologian said, Matthew Mead, he writes this. I've shared this with you before. I love this quote. This is a great quote. No man was ever kept out of heaven for his confessed badness, though many are kept out of heaven for their supposed goodness. We saw it several weeks ago as we looked at Matthew chapter 7. Many. This has just been in my head as a preacher. Many. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, I did all this cool religious stuff in your name. And Jesus said, I don't know who you are. 
Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Religion is lawlessness. Religion is lawlessness. It's flesh on parade. It's getting all prettied up. Putting on our best clothes, so to speak. To try to impress everyone around us and God. Listen, God is not impressed. Men may be impressed, but God is not impressed. The only thing that impresses God is the finished work of His Son on the cross when Jesus redeemed the people for Himself. So tonight in Mark 10, we see what appears to be someone who's quite eager to become a Christian. Yes? That's what it appears to be on the page. This guy looks like he really understands that he's bad and he needs a Savior. Instead, what we discover is this guy is a really religious guy and he thinks he's pretty good and he's really just looking for a few more religious things to do. So he can be seen as good in the eyes of his friends and family. You know, you know this, beloved. God tells us that no one seeks Him. But we know what men seek. And we know that many men come into the church because they, they have a felt need. And many evangelists and preachers will play off of this. They'll play on this. They'll take advantage of this. And they try to get someone to capitulate and become a Christian by uh, playing up some felt need or trying to psychologically manipulate someone. Yeah, men, men want happiness. And so you say, well, you'll be happy if you come to Jesus. Men want to be fulfilled. Well, you'll be happy if, you're, if you, you'll be fulfilled if you come to Jesus. Men have felt needs. And so men do seek purpose and fulfillment and happiness and love and meaning. They seek these things. They don't always seek God. These things are not synonymous with God. God provides these things, but many people want these things apart from Christ. I want to be happy, but I don't want to be a disciple. Right? I want to be fulfilled, but I don't want to do what you say because that sounds hard. You know, I want to be satisfied in my life, but I don't want to do what you say, Lord. You know, there are many, many people who come into the church because they have some felt need. But at the end of the day, they don't really want Christ. They don't really want Christ. And that's what Jesus, that's the point Jesus is going to make tonight. I mean, this guy, this guy looks like a can't-miss prospect, right? And I think there's a great lesson for us here. This is our fourth sermon on the Gospel according to Jesus. We've seen uh, how the words of Jesus have bolstered what we learned in our look at 1 John that we started back in early February. We've actually seen how radical the words of Jesus are uh, when it comes to true conversion and discipleship. So far, we've heard Jesus say it's a narrow way. We've heard Him say that there are few who find it. We've heard Him say that you must strive to enter into the kingdom. We've heard Him say that uh, uh, real Christianity bears good fruit. Real Christianity is in relationship with Christ. The knowing thing is going on. The relationship is going on. It's not simply I go to church and I do religious stuff. It's I know Him. I love Him. That's real Christianity. Real Christianity, Jesus has told us, it builds its life upon Jesus and His words. True disciples act. True disciples obey, albeit imperfectly, as we have continually said. 
Jesus has told us that some appear to have received the Word of God with joy. They look real. But under affliction and persecution and worry and uh, the burden of riches, they fall away. The love of riches, rather. They fall away. It wasn't really about Jesus at all. It was about some felt need they had. They thought they would add Jesus to their life. You know how this works, right? This happens in the West all the time. Jesus is presented in such a pathetic way that people think, oh, well, he's like a rabbit's foot. And I'll add him to my life. And I'll have good luck. Many people have this concept. I, I don't know if you know friends like this. But I'll, I'll just add Jesus to my life for the, the good things that I want from him. Beloved, it doesn't work like that. I mean, it's clear from the text tonight, we'll see it. It does not work like that. He's either Lord of your life, or that's it. That's the only relationship Jesus is interested in having with you. He's your Lord. You are His disciple. That's the only relationship He's interested in. He's not interested in any other relationship except that you are His disciple and He's your Lord. And then that beautiful, and I think Elaine said it so well, that, that beautiful love and intimacy, that, that intimate relationship begins as we, as we submit to Him and, and begin to fall in love with Him. As we saw last week, Jesus says, only, only those who supremely love Me can be My disciple. And you remember what Jesus said last week too? He said, you need to really sit down and think about it. Are you up for going with Me? Because it may cost you everything. This is what He clearly says. Are you up for it? Are you up for members of your household to hate you? Are you up for persecution? Are you up for affliction? Are you up for hard obedience? Are you up for it? Sit down, Jesus says, and figure it out. Think about it. Is that what you want? Do you really love me like that? This is what Jesus has been saying to us. This is hard stuff. But beloved, I feel like I almost need to preach these sermons every two or three years. Because, we need to, because the whole church has turned over almost since the last time. We need to be reminded what the Gospel is. Really from the red words. <laughs> All we have to do is read the red words and truly understand the radical nature of the Gospel. So I hope you have your Bibles open. Mark chapter 10. The Holy Spirit has included this account in Matthew, also in Luke, and then tonight in our text, Mark Chapter 10, verse 17. This rich guy, well, we know he's rich. Okay, let me just tell you, we know he's rich from verse 22. But Luke, pardon me, Matthew tells us, pardon me, Luke tells us he's also a ruler. He's obviously, most likely, the ruler of a local synagogue, okay? So this is a rich, uh, big shot guy, right? He's a big shot. He's rich. He's religious. He's a big man in the community, right? And he runs up to Jesus. You see it there in verse 17. He, uh, he runs up. He kneels down. This is unbelievable. First that this guy's running. This didn't happen. Men of stature did not run. It was below their dignity to run. He runs. And he gets his knees. This is an astonishing thing. And he says, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
This is a big shot. He's a big deal at the synagogue. People know him. They respect him. He's wealthy. He has a lot of influence. Actually, in Matthew, it also says, it includes this phrase, it says, what good thing shall I do? What good thing shall I do to inherit eternal life? So this highly motivated guy, he comes with the right attitude. He comes to the right source and he asks the right question. No evangelist worth his salt would ever lose this guy. Right? No evangelist would ever lose this guy. He would be so easy. Yeah, pray the prayer. Boom, he's in, right? Isn't that how we do it in the West? Many places. I don't know what's your tradition, uh, what it's like where you grew up, where you're from. But no good evangelist would lose this guy. Yeah, where I'm from, I'll just tell you where I'm from, the, you know, the average pastor said, yeah, pray this prayer, sign this card. You know, I'm going to baptize you next week and I'll have you on a committee by the end of the month. Because you always put the rich guys on the committee. Because they got lots of money and they can help fund the things that uh, the church wants to do. This is not what Jesus does. As we've seen in our last three sermons, either Jesus doesn't know how to evangelize or we don't know how to evangelize. And my money's on Him. <laughs> Jesus, you know, anytime He gets a multitude, anytime He gets a group of people follow Him, He just turns around and says, boom, you must pick up your cross and follow Me. He, gets, he starts to gather a group, He turns around and says, you must hate your whole family to go with Me. You know, He just does this stuff. And... It's because Jesus Christ is not interested in superficial followers. He's simply not. Just read the Gospel with that in your mind. Is Jesus interested in superficial commitments? Read the Gospels, all four of the Gospels with that in your mind. You'll see that He's not interested at all in that. He's interested in disciples. He's interested in disciples. So Jesus doesn't give him a dumbed-down Gospel. He doesn't make it easy for him to make a decision for Christ. Instead, Jesus lovingly shows this young man what it looks like to be a real Christian. I think the modern church would do well to emulate Jesus Christ in this. And I've actually come to a conviction as I studied this week. Next time I have a baptism candidate come to me, we will go to Mark chapter 10. And we will look at the elements of the Gospel that Jesus has presented. Um, I think it's very, very effective. So let me, let me go back and just say, as we go through, as we go through here, I want you to, to try to identify the four elements that, that Jesus uses in the, the Gospel presentation. It's not Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's not that. Some of you have used that. Some of you have heard that. It's not that. That's not what Jesus uses. So try to identify the elements of the Gospel that Jesus uses as He speaks to this young man about what it means to follow Him. And what we see Jesus do, we see Jesus putting up barriers. We see Jesus putting up barriers. He says, I don't want superficial followers. So He puts up barriers to superficial professions of faith. Jesus just puts it up. And He tells the truth. 
He tells the truth. Verse 18, Jesus said, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. What is Jesus saying here? I think two things. I think He's saying two things here. First, I think He's saying, Do you realize who I am? I think He's saying, Why are you calling me good? Do you realize I'm God? Do you realize I'm your Messiah? Do you realize I'm your Creator? Do you realize I am I am? I am? Maybe that was too many times. Do you, do you realize that I am I am? I think this is one thing Jesus is saying. This is the first component of the Gospel. Do you know He's God? Do you know Jesus is God? Do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you own that? Do you submit to His divine authority over you? I've told you this many times, whether you bow your knee to Him or not, you are His. You are His intellectual property. He made you. He owns you as, as the, the potter owns the jar. He owns you. Even if you don't submit to Him, you're still His in that context or in that sense. I think that's what Jesus is saying. I'm God. Secondly, I think what He's saying here is that He's going to give this you know, big shot religious guy a lesson on goodness. As I said to you earlier, goodness is an absolute term. It only applies to Jehovah God. That's it. Biblically speaking. It only applies to God. Jesus is going to drive this point home with this young man. Jesus is going to lovingly blow up his self-delusions of his own self-righteousness. This is one way to love somebody, to really love somebody who's trusting in their religion, trusting in their own good works, trusting in their self-righteousness, to simply blow it up. And this is what Jesus is going to do with this guy. Verse 19, Jesus said, you know the commandments? Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Now, when was the last time you heard someone bring up the law in an evangelism presentation? I say next time you try to evangelize somebody, go to Mark chapter 10 and use the elements that Jesus is using. First, what was the first one we saw? What was the first one we saw? I'm God. He's God. He's not a good man. He's not a good teacher. He's not merely a prophet. He's God. And what is this one? Jesus, is, Jesus begins to put the law in front of this guy. Why is Jesus putting the law in front of this guy? He's going to show him that he can't be justified before God through the law. I, I commend it to you. The law crushes the sinner. It crushes the flesh. No man can withstand the law. The law kills. It does its work. It slays the flesh. And that's where you have to be to come to Christ, beloved. You have to be there. You have to understand there's no goodness in you. You have to understand your religion is a stench in the nostrils of God apart from the finished work of Jesus. This is the message of the Lord. So Jesus puts the... the uh, do you notice the, the, the commandments that He puts in front of this guy? It's the first... Pardon me, the second half of the Ten Commandments that has to do with human relationships. The second half, basically, of the Ten Commandments. So what does this guy do? Verse 20. He says, I've done all that stuff. He's done it all. 
Really? You've done the law? This guy has no clue what he's talking about. What's he talking about? You guys know what he's talking about. I've done it outwardly. I've done the law outwardly. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't committed adultery. Oh, what does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? If you hate somebody, what? You're a murderer. And if you lust for someone, what? You're an adulterer. This guy is keeping it on the outside. You remember, you remember what uh, Jesus said to the Pharisees? He said, man, you're all prettied up in your religion. You look good on the outside. But, I think I shared this with you a few weeks ago, but you're whitewashed sepulchers. You're full of dead men's bones. Jesus is trying to show this guy he has no hope. He has no hope saying he can keep law. He can't stand before God and say, I kept the law. No! Nobody can keep the law. That's why the law is there. I remember when we were in Doha the first time down in Qatar, and uh, we went through the mosque, and, and uh, my lovely wife, of course, you're not supposed to evangelize in Doha. You get, you get, what's the word? You get sent away. You get put out of the country. And so we're talking to this guy. You know, he speaks good English. He's talking to us. Actually, he's from England, this Muslim guy. And, uh, you know, and he goes, I read this. I read Christianity. I can't keep that law. Karen goes, that's right. You can't. But Jesus did. Beloved, when you, when you evangelize, when you evangelize, you need, sometimes it's absolutely right to throw somebody up against the law. They need to see. They need to see. They have no hope. No hope. Apart from the righteousness of Christ that He imputes to those who receive Him as Lord and Savior. You know, in the, Mount, in the Sermon on the Mount, you, you know, Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, You've heard the religious guy say, but listen to what I say. Hate is murder. Lust is adultery. You have not kept the law, young man. You have not kept the law. You know, this big shot religious guy, he probably broke the law on his way down to see Jesus. You know? He probably had an impure thought on his way down to see Jesus. So Jesus puts the law in front of him. He puts the law in front of him. So Jesus is challenging this guy's self-righteousness, his self-justification. You guys know this. I've told you this many times. Religion is outside in. It's trying to work the outside, but real Christianity is inside out. It's inside out. It's the miracle that God has done in our hearts on the inside and it begins to flow out. You can't take religion in and become good. It has to, it's not outside in, it's inside out. It's something we need to always remember. Verse 21, to drive the point home, Jesus says, Oh, you've done the law? Okay. Then let's do it supremely. Basically, go and sell all you possess, give it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. 
Is Jesus saying that we have to sell everything? We talked about this last week. We saw it in the Luke 14 passage. Do we have to sell everything to, to become a Christian? No, of course not. But we would. We would, right? We would. If my God tells me to. If my Redeemer calls me to. Of course I would. We know what the Bible says. We know what He says. Don't be worried about anything. I got your back on everything. Be a radical disciple, Jesus says. Be open-handed. Your Father knows what you need. I'll make sure you get what you need. These are the promises. These are the promises of Jesus. He says, go sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. By this question, Jesus is showing this man that he is breaking all the law. He's, broke, he's breaking all the law. You remember how Jesus summarized it over in Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31. Jesus says this, this is a summation of the whole law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus says, oh, you keep the law, love your neighbors as yourself, give them everything you have. Jesus says, oh, you keep the law? Then love me supremely. You come and follow me with your life. Give me your life. And we see that this man is not willing to do either one of them. And so we see that Jesus slaps him up against the whole law. And this guy is unwilling to do any of it. He's unwilling to do any of it. Verse 22, He went away grieved because He was rich. The Luke account says that He was very sad. So He walks away grieved. Why did this big shot religious guy walk away grieved? Because he had an idol in his heart. He broke the first four commandments. Those commandments that have to do with God. You guys know the first four commandments. He had a false God that he put before Jehovah God. What was it? It was his money. And of course, God says, you shall have no God before me. The second commandment. You shall worship and serve no idol. This man was worshiping and serving his idol. His money. His money meant more to him than what his God had just said to him. His money meant more to him than his neighbors who he said he loved. You see how, you see how revealing the law is? You see how powerful the law is when you're doing evangelism? The third commandment. Do not take the, the Lord's name in vain. And I know how we, we normally think about that. But beloved, when you speak God's name and you don't He's not really your God. You are taking His name in vain. If you have some other God, it's, let's just say money, like this guy. If, if money is really your God, to speak the name of the living God is to take His name in vain. So he takes, he's taken God's name in vain his whole life. Because he doesn't really love Him. He loves His money. 
And he loves his power. He loves his prestige. He loves his comfort. He loves his ease. He loves the status that this money brings him. He'd been taking the, the, the Lord's name in vain all of his life. The fourth commandment, keep the Sabbath. Well, he's a religious leader. He'd been in the synagogue. He's in the synagogue every Sabbath, but it was on a hypocritical basis. He wasn't keeping the Sabbath at all. He was coming into the Sabbath and blaspheming God by loving money more. This is the message. Every commandment that deals with God, He broke it. <laughs> Jesus, boom, slapped Him up against the law. Beloved, this is powerful. This is a powerful thing for us to see. You know, you can be outwardly religious and be breaking every law of God. You can be outwardly religious and be alienated from God. You can be outward religious and be on your way to hell. These are some of the things we take away from this great text. So, what are the elements of the Gospel presentation here that Jesus has made to this guy? What are the elements that we see here? One, Jesus showed him God. Two, Jesus showed him the law. Verse 21, Jesus showed this man his own sin. And Jesus called him to repentance. Verse 21 again, Jesus revealed his absolute lordship in this man's life. But this man was unwilling to come. You know, as I said to you earlier, it's not as catchy as God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but it is biblically accurate. You know, to tell someone that God has a wonderful plan for your life, I want to say to you, don't, I, would, I would commend you or recommend that you don't use that. Because that's a terrible thing to say to an unbeliever. Because it's simply a lie. As long as they're outside the finished work of Jesus, God doesn't have a wonderful plan for their life. If we actually read our Bibles and understand them, Psalm 5-7 said, God hates all who do iniquity. Psalm 7-11 says, God is angry with the wicked every day. Romans 2-5 says, The unbeliever is storing up wrath for the day of wrath. Beloved, don't look into an unbeliever's eye and say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Jesus never said anything like that, nor did any of the apostles. If you love someone, you say, listen, I need to sit down. We need to sit down and talk. Because I fear for you. It's not simply that Jesus can meet your felt needs. Yes, He can. But that's not the basis upon which to have a sound profession. You need to understand you desperately need Him above all things. This is what Jesus is driving this man to. So listen, beloved, I think we need, to, we need to imitate Jesus here. We need to quit spinning the Gospel. We just need to have some integrity with the Word of God. We need to quit trying to market the Gospel. We just need to, be, we just need to have enough love for people to tell them the truth. Hey, next time you need to evangelize someone, just go to Mark 10. Just go to Mark 10. I love Mark 10. This guy would, have been, would love to have been a respected church member. He would have loved to have been a church-going church guy. You can do that without loving Jesus. That's easy to do. I mean, he would have jumped at the chance to pray the prayer if Jesus said, hey, just pray this prayer. You can have eternal life. He'd have jumped all over it, man. He would have jumped all over it. He would have been happy to memorize some church dogma and do some sacraments. You can do those things and not really love God. 
Jesus demands preeminent love. That's what we saw last week. Preeminent love. You say, well, Jim, this message is too hard. It's too hard. I don't like to hear it. My friends won't listen to this. <coughs> Beloved, that's not your problem. <laughs> that's not, you know. Our job is simply to, to sow seed. We saw this several weeks ago. We just sow good seed and let God do what God does. Don't try to make the gospel easy. It's not. It's not. According to Jesus, I don't know what your local denominational theologians say, but I know what Jesus says. Jesus says, you must strive to enter in the kingdom of God. It's not some cheap and easy thing you can have at your convenience. Beloved, it's not that. If we're going to actually believe the Bible. You cannot come to Christ with your, on your own terms. We've said it many, many times. You have to come to Him on, your, on His terms. Not your terms. His terms. They are not negotiable. They are non-negotiable. His terms. His terms. Not your terms. His terms. So this rich guy walks away because he loved his money. We see this great contrast. You remember the story of Zacchaeus, right? Over in Luke chapter 19. Zacchaeus was a rich guy too. What was the first thing Zacchaeus said? Jesus didn't say anything to him about money. But what? after Zacchaeus had received Christ, what was the very first thing Zacchaeus said? He said, I'm going to give half my stuff to the, to, the, to, uh, to the poor people. And he did it with great joy. This man walks away grieved. Why? Because he loved money more than God. Zacchaeus said, man, I'm going to distribute this. Why? Because he's full of joy. It's what happens in conversion, beloved. You know, you get the relative value of money and God real fast. <laughs> you know, when you get a, a, a genuine glimpse of Jesus, man, you understand where the value is. You understand it. It's not in that pile of money. It's in Christ. It's in Christ and Christ alone. Real quick, Real quick, we see, we see here that Jesus says, verses 23 to 27, He says it's hard for a rich man to be saved. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. The disciples are astonished. Why are they astonished? Uh, it was the accepted dogma of the day that the rich had the favor of God. So they're astonished. If a rich man can't be saved, then who can be saved? Verse 27, Jesus says, With men it's, salvation is impossible, but with God all things are possible. This highlights the biblical truth that salvation is supernatural. It is a miracle of God. It's what God does. It's what I told you a couple weeks ago. I don't try to convert you. I can't convert you. I can't convert anyone. God converts His people. How does He convert His people? With the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. The Word of Christ. Hearing the Word of Christ. That's how faith comes. So all you have to do, beloved, is sow seed into your family, sow seed into your workplace, sow seed where you go to school. Just sow the seed. And God does the hard stuff. God does the miraculous stuff. You've got to love it. There's no heat on us. There's no pressure on us. God's doing all this, 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 this the heavy lifting here. So the point is, salvation is impossible for all men, rich or poor. It's only possible because God works miracles in the hearts of His people. I love this truth. This is a beautiful truth. That is Jesus' foundation, foundational point here.
Jesus Christ is your preeminent, supreme, and ultimate treasure. Money is merely a means by which we incarnate that reality. We have money to glorify God. Yes, He gives us money to, to, to support our families. Of course, this is what we're supposed to do. We, can, we even glorify God as we do that, as we're good stewards. But we glorify God in how we use and give the money that He gives to us. Verse 28, Peter says, Lord, we've left everything to follow You. Actually, in one of the other Gospels, he says, what shall there be for us? We have left everything for You. And you got to love verse 29-30. to 30. I know you love this. Truly I say to you, Jesus says, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for My sake and for the sake of the Gospel, but that he shall receive a hundred times as much now and in the present now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers, children and farms, along with persecutions in the, and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus says, Peter, every good thing is yours. Every good thing is yours. You are my disciple. You love me above all things. Every good thing is yours. The Father has chosen gladly to give you everything good. Not just now, but forever. For a billion eternities. Beloved, this is awesome stuff. This is awesome stuff. Jesus said, you can't, even, you can't really make a sacrifice for me. You can't do it. Because I'm going to reward you a hundred times fold. A hundredfold. I'm going to reward you, He said. You know, this, if you read missionary biographies, you see this. These guys that, that pay these heavy prices, they go to these places, these hard places, but they, they, they always come back and say, I never made one sacrifice for Jesus. It was all worth it. He came to me intimately. The intimacy just exploded as I entered into hard obedience. You can't sacrifice for I am. He's always going to outbless. He's always going to bless you more. And that which you've given up is returned to you a hundredfold. What else did he say in verse 30? And I'm wrapping it up now. What else did he say in verse 30? You get all this good stuff, plus what? What is there at the end of the verse? You get what? You get what? Persecutions. Well, who wants to hear that? This is how Jesus teaches. Well, why don't you just leave that out? Don't bring that up. Let's get this guy to... You know, receive Christ first. Pray the prayer first. Don't say that. I can just hear His disciples. Don't say that, Jesus. Why does Jesus say it? Because it's true. He said you're going to have new life. And you're going to have new enemies. You're going to have mothers and brothers and sisters and, and, and brothers and mothers and brothers and mothers and brothers. All over the world, you're going to have them. And you're going to have enemies too. They will... They will hate you because they hated me. And if they hated me, they'll hate you. It's the Word. It's the Word of God. You'll have spiritual blessing and inheritance, but you will have spiritual warfare and enemies. In time. So why does God allow His people to be persecuted? We've talked about it many times. Because it puts the value of Jesus on display. When you go through persecution, when you go through affliction, and you just praise God, everyone around you sees the value of Jesus. 
That's why. Because Jesus is magnified in your suffering. I stole this from John Piper and I love it. Jesus is better than anything this life can give and Jesus is better than anything death can take. Amen? If, if, if you can't say that in good conscience, I, beloved, I think you have some work to do with God. But if you can say in good conscience that Jesus is better than anything this life can give and Jesus is better than anything death can take, then yeah, you get it. You understand the Gospel. You understand Jesus Christ. You understand what it means to be a Christian. It's bad men like John Piper and John MacArthur and Jim Albright who come to understand they deserve hell but have been the beneficiaries of God's unfathomable grace, mercy, and love through the finished work of Jesus. That's a disciple. And you can't stop somebody like that. If somebody's really, you know, understands what he deserves, if he really understands it, and now he understands what his inheritance is in Jesus, you can't stop a man or woman like that. You can't stop him. I mean, you can't. You, you, you can't stop him. Man, they're just too jazzed. How can you not be jazzed? Can you not be jazzed? If we're not jazzed, beloved, we're not understanding it. We're not any getting it. So the last four sermons, we've, I think I preached too long, but um, we've seen that to be a disciple of Jesus means that we're sold out, we walk the narrow way, we bear fruit, and we love Him above all else. This is biblical Christianity. Let's pray together. Awesome God, we praise You. We thank You that You challenge us. You always challenge us where we are. Thank You, Father. This is just too important. It's just too important. Eternity's too long for us to be deceived. So thank You, Father, that You've reminded us what the, what the Gospel is and what it means to be a Christian what it looks like to be a true lover and follower of Christ. We thank You for these great messages, these great texts that we have looked at and how You have made it crystal clear. We can ignore what You've said, but there's no way we can misunderstand what You've said. We know what You're calling us to, Lord. And we tremble, rightly so. For we know we are not worthy. We know we are not able but we know, believing, simply believing Your Word, that You give us all we need. You give us all we need to be disciples of Jesus. So we give all praise, glory, and honor to You, great God, our great Creator God, our great Redeemer God, our great ruling and reigning God, our great returning God. We give all praise and glory to You. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.